0: of my world. There once was a man from outer space who got stuck with the whole human race. He tried and he tried, but his brain it was fried, even when he changed his face.
1: There once was a lady named Joe, whose appearance was more than so-so. I don't mean to be mean, but mostly she'd scream, and into space she rarely did go. There once
2: was an actor Pertwee who served in the British Navy, the character of Bond he leaned heavily on in his role of Dr. O3.
3: There once was a Time Lord of Peace whose attempts at unity never ceased, but he got stuck with Unit who blew everything up and made his brow angrily creased.
1: Welcome back to Get Off My World, a podcast about Doctor Who. I'm Pat. I'm Kelvin. I'm Joshua.
0: And I'm Ariel.
1: And we're going to inflict upon you five rounds rapid about classic Doctor Who today. We're going to go straight into our first round. This is a new round that we're doing after our regeneration, and we like to call it the answer to the first question. We've been taking questions from listeners on social media, and we'll do our best to answer them. So today's question comes from uh, my old high school buddy, Ben W., uh, who asks on our Facebook page, from a distance, what are the significant narrative differences between Doctor Who and the Sherlock Holmes franchises? I think there's a lot of different ways we can take that discussion. So uh, Ariel, would you mind starting us out?
0: Well, I am happy to jump in. I would like to jump in, though, with something that actually is a similarity that leads to a difference. The most striking thing to me when I think about both of these fellas is that they are not human in the way we think of human. One is literally not human, and one is just so distanced from humanity. He doesn't react to people the way a normal human does. He doesn't seem to have the emotional connections that most humans do. And the other one is just literally an alien. So they've got that in common, and they both tend to be investigative, right? They both are uh, given a puzzle to solve one way or the other, and they do it. But the difference between two of them is that the Doctor loves humanity, and Sherlock Holmes seems like he'd pretty much be happy if they all went up in a blaze of fire. (laughs) He likes solving the case, but he very rarely has any attachment to the people involved in the case. The only thing he seems to love is his own ego.
2: Sometimes that's true of the doctor, though, too, who doesn't like to clean up the mess. He loves to fight on the side of the rebels, but then beat ass out of there. That's <laughs> true, but he often time. is like,
0: willing to put his life against the that's wall, true. whereas I'm pretty sure if Sherlock Holmes was told it was his life and his heroine or everybody else, he'd choose his own life. I think another
2: big difference to me, to quote an episode we'll be talking about shortly, that... The doctor is essentially disruptive. He is chaotic good, where I feel like at his heart Sherlock Holmes is still a queen and country man. And that's a character, not necessarily a narrative, like story He's telling difference. Neutral. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely despite the very surface similarities between as you pointed out, they're both <laughs> investigators and trouble solvers and have all sorts of eccentricities which define them on a surface level and they have the relatable audience reader companion character uh, who acts as the go between between the reader and the eccentric hero
0: and they both kind of hate the authority figures that poorly do the job that they're supposed to do and come to them for help
2: on the whole, yes, um, Lestrade is like the bad time lord character <laughs> in Doctor Who.
1: Yeah, they're they're suspicious of conventional authority. Right. You know, it's the British eccentric tradition, an individualist mm-hmm. tradition.
3: I guess I'm trying to compare like the companions and Doctor Watson, and I'm not I'm not sure how much of a parallel there is there because I. I gotta admit, I'm I'm probably the most ignorant of the four of us about Sherlock Holmes. I mean, I, I, I know the broad strokes of it, but I don't think I've actually seen that many stories or read that many of them.
0: Well, his companion never changes. His companion
3: never changes. Uh, I mean, I've got I'm mostly familiar with the Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce type Sherlock Holmes, which is a very accurate uh, portrayal. I mean, I mean. Oh, and the modern one is. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, Watson wasn't an idiot. But you know, I, I still think of that Nigel Bruce like,
4: "Whoa,
3: you know, <laughs> Holmes, how did you figure that one out?" Holmes, I ejaculated, <laughs> you know, uh, that kind of thing. And, you know, so yeah, yeah, the Nigel Bruce, uh, inaccurate portrayal of Doctor Watson is kind of the role of the companions of, you know, like, "Well, what is it, Doctor? What, what is this? What's going on?" You know, the the narrative device to just. Be, be an audience uh, surrogate. Doctor
0: or Holmes, please insert your monologue of explanation here. <laughs> yes.
1: Exposition Catalyst. Yeah, Exposition Catalyst, yeah.
2: But it's another similarity between them in that uh, they are both shows that are continually being recreated or franchises that are being updated and modernized as they go.
0: I think maybe another significant difference is that on the whole, Holmes has skills. You know, that that often are applicable to the cases You know, things like, oh, I'm gonna bring this Exercise fitness guru Into space with me, as opposed to Holmes, who's actually like, I could really Use a medical doctor to examine these Corpses for me, and then of course Possibly disprove everything That Watson found out, but at least he's gonna Give me a good basis by which to ridicule Everything
3: Yeah, yeah I mean, Holmes ha- is uh, An expert on beekeeping and, and the doctor's an expert on uh, cheese making.
2: <laughs> so... Oh, but honey a, and cheese go together really
4: yeah, well. Yeah, you know, there, there's some parallels there.
1: Well, I, I'd like to kind of broaden the scope of the question a little bit and talk about sort of ideas of what makes a Doctor Who story or a Sherlock Holmes story, if you don't mind. I've got a little riff on this that I would like to present. <clears throat> Please. So, in both Doctor Who and in Sherlock Holmes before that, there's a lot of emphasis on what we now call canon or canonicity. Um, the word canon is kind of interesting because it's originally a word used in biblical textual scholarship from the medieval church to try to figure out which of the many, many religious texts are actually part of the Bible. And different, and historically, different churches have had. It come to different conclusions about which books are in the Bible or are, are not. And then it wasn't until maybe the mid-18th century that that word got, got drifted over into people talking about things like the secular canon. So the books that you should read, you should read, you know, Aeschylus and Euripides or Voltaire and Shakespeare and things like that, sort of what we would call the Western classics now. Um, and in addition, there's a sense of the word that refers to identifying which works are correctly attributed to, to a particular author, whether a particular play is actually by Shakespeare, for example. And there's been a lot of scholarship over the centuries about exactly that, how much of the two noble kinsmen is actually Shakespeare and how much of it is not. You know, But in our modern pop cultural sense, uh, canon, it kind of comes out of Sherlock Holmes' fandom, It created our pop culture idea of canon as a definitional tool to discriminate between works written by Conan Doyle and the zillion other Holmes and Holmes-adjacent stories that popped up because Holmes was so incredibly popular. And it was, from the beginning, kind of self-consciously a little silly. It was supposed to be a kind of light parody of literary analysis. but now it's really kind of taken over our understanding of pop culture. What is or is not canon? Yeah, you know, Is Dumbledore gay, for example? Is that a canonical thing? J.K. Rowling said that he was, but it is not present in any of those Harry Potter books. And what is or isn't part of the Star Wars universe? As I understand it, George Lucas was so appalled by the Star Wars holiday special that he, from that point on, made a a point of reviewing or having Lucasfilm review anything that had the Star Wars name on it to make sure that it at least kind of broadly fit in with his idea of what the Star Wars universe is. Does that make the extended universe Star Wars books canonical? Well, maybe at one point, but then when Disney took over, they one of the very first things they did was say that they are not they, they struck they, all
0: the Timothy Zons, which were so good. Decanonized right.
1: them, so and they, we accept that they have the power to do that, or at least we sort of do, right? Because this is either what is canon. It's uh, either Arthur Conan Doyle wrote the home stories, and that's canon, or. George Lucas gets to decide, or his people get to decide what's in or is not in the Star Wars universe. But in the case of Doctor Who, it's much more uncertain. There's no more, there's no one author like Conan Doyle, or no guiding hand like George Lucas. Uh, There's just an unending churn of writers and producers, for the most part, are not particularly concerned about every little historical detail, or which story is or is not part of the canon. And at this point, I have to insert a shameless plug for a book (laughs) I co-edited Third
0: person... <laughs>
1: third person, authoring and exploring vast narratives. There are essays in there by Lance Parkin, Paul Cornell, Kate Orman, uh, and Cranny Francis, John Tulloch, and Matt Hills that specifically talk about these ideas of canonicity and what is or is not canonical in Doctor Who and the various choices that have been made over the years to decide what is or isn't. Like when Russell T. Davies reintroduces the Daleks in the Christopher Eccleston episode. He's not assuming that the audience is going to know every detail of Dalek history from the original series or anything from the books or the audios, but he is consciously aware that the audience knows what a Dalek is and more or less what it does. And so, at the beginning of New Who, that was a solid choice. That was a choice to make. Like, we're going to refer... To the canon of Doctor Who without getting deep in the weeds of the individual details of it. It was only later in New Who when it became apparent that the audiences were going to accept more and more complicated references to the original show that you can do more of that, like having Paul McGann refer to companions from the audio adventures in. Night of the Doctor, which was a surprise even to me. I didn't think they would reach that far deeply into it. So there's kind of a kind of a rambly little thing about canon and canonicity. But I think the point to draw from it is that while pop culture is very invested in the idea of canons and canonicity, Doctor Who kind of escapes that a little bit by just not having any kind of centralized authority that can tell you what is or isn't canon and even the televised show seems to drift back and forth between acknowledging or not acknowledging stuff that went before.
0: I wonder, though, if they have ever rejected books that people have written because they couldn't fit into the timeline of what is happening. I started writing, not that they would have ever published this, let's be clear, I was 12, but I started writing a Doctor <laughs> Who. read and some <laughs> of the
2: Doctor Who books, and you maybe had a shot.
0: I started writing a Doctor Who and Ace book that... The, what was going to be the, the, the wrap-up of it was cancelled out by a book that was published while I was writing it and I was like, oh, I can't do that now because this would make that impossible so I'm wondering if there's still somebody that is fact-checking that to say oh, that's going to counter against or maybe because Doctor different- Who allows for all the different realities all of these things could exist in some multiversal place
1: I suspect that the people who run the show do their best to not completely undermine previous televised stuff from the new show. But it's certainly the case that they cancel Earlier Who in the sense of, like, Paul Cornell's Human Nature that started as a book with the Seventh Doctor and then became a David Tennant TV episode, or Rob Sherman's Dalek episode, for that matter, Mm -hmm. which originally was a uh, Colin Baker audio and then became a Christopher Eccleston TV show. There's no realist way in which... Th- those stories could both happen, both versions uh, of the stories could time happen. Time <laughs> <laughs> more. Yeah, well That's your, your get-out-of-canon-free card <laughs> yeah, there. It yeah.
2: But it's interesting that you bring up uh, canon specifically because it also is maybe a similarity in that Sherlock Holmes I think created the idea of fandom canon fixes. Which yeah. is what a lot of fan fiction today is. Is retconning or uh, band aiding uh, story issues, which the Baker Street Regulars, that was one of the things they originally did in the, uh, that faux academic style, as they found inconsistencies in the home's canon and would explain them away in their gatherings with a sense of humor. And that's yep. probably the biggest difference is that they had a sense of humor, <laughs> and modern fans <laughs> don't. Oh, modern fans
4: are <laughs>
0: terrible.
4: Yes, yeah, so there's the original They're no
0: problem. <laughs>
4: Now for round two, we
2: will be discussing as part of our larger discussion of the unit family stories, The Claws of Axos, the third serial of season eight and the first story written by Bob Baker and Dave Martin, who wrote a lot of other Doctor Who stories, including the Mutants, the Three Doctors, the Santaran Experiment, the Hand of Fear, the Invisible Enemy, making them the creators of Canine, uh, which will prove to be lucrative in the future for them. Uh, underworld and the Armageddon Factor. Uh, Bob Baker also wrote Nightmare of Eden. All by his lonesome, he put on his big boy pants and said, "Screw you, Dave Martin," and wrote Nightmare of Eden. He also co-wrote most of the Wallace and Gromit films with Nick
4: Parks.
0: Well, I like that these two at least aren't afraid to say their names together. (laughs) We'll get into that later, though.
2: It was directed by Michael Ferguson, who also directed The War Machines, The Seeds of Death, and The Ambassadors of Death, and uh, here's my little bit of trivia that I dug up. He was also an assistant floor manager during the production of the Daleks, and is credited as the first ever Dalek operator because oh, no. he apparently worked the sucker arm on the Dalek who menaced Barbara in the, uh, first, the first Dalek cliffhanger. Wow. Yes.
0: If only I could have such a credit to my name.
1: <laughs> what an illustrious pedigree this story I know. has. <laughs> Does it live up to it, do we think? I mean, for it's a four episode John Pertwee, Joe, and unit story. It's maybe the quintessential unit story, right? Mm-hmm. It's got everything. It's alien invasion, um officious officials.
0: <laughs> Idiots trying to use guns to solve everything. Yeah, yeah, aliens that can't be killed. Uh master.
1: Master nuclear, reactors. nuclear <laughs> reactors. It
2: is often described as the John Pertwee greatest hits,
0: and episode. it's it's used often it, when you see. I, w- I was looked, checking this out, and like a number of times when they do like specials with Doctor Who episodes, this is the one that they'll pick from the Third Doctor.
2: And I mean, I think it comes down to: Do you really love the Pertwee unit family years? then yeah, you're going to love the hell out of a Greatest Hits version, uh, which I do. Uh, I don't know that I could really defend it heartily as the greatest piece of Pertwee Doctor Who, but I think it is just a lot of stupid fun.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I'm with you. I, I find myself kind of at a loss for what to say about Clause of Access because it doesn't... Like, a lot of the things that I enjoy about Doctor Who is when they, it goes, like, wildly off the rails in one direction or another. Like, it just is a complete disaster or it transcends its concept. But this is, like, right down the middle. You know what I mean? This is exactly Pertwee-era unit mm-hmm. story. I love it. I love watching it. And part of me is okay with just resting right there and not having much more to say. Yeah,
3: yeah. I, I was kind of... Uh, I'm just amused by, like, the the opening of, with the weird homeless guy on the bike. Pig Ben Josh? Pig Ben Josh. It's actually my namesake my mom named me after. Oh,
4: okay. (laughs)
2: Weirdly after I was born, which
4: kind of scarred me a little.
0: (laughs) (laughs) She saw that episode and said, that's who my baby looks and like. They, and
3: they had, they had to throw in a bit of dialogue about like, unusual weather disruptions because there was a freak Good. snowstorm <laughs> while they were filming. Yeah, that's why they
2: did awesome.
3: Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, it was totally unplanned. That's why suddenly Pig Ben Josh is biking in the snow.
2: My favorite thing about Pig Ben Josh, though, uh, besides his excellent name, is the way he mutters sounds just exactly like Mr. Bean. If you're a fan of Mr. Bean, <laughs> <laughs> he gets, uh, I expect him at any point to go, Bean. <laughs> and then when he gets angry at one point, he sounds a lot like the swearing dad from A Christmas Story. So it's sort of Mr. Bean, <laughs> Darren McGavin? <laughs> yeah, and Darren McGavin <laughs> combined into a comically homeless drunkard.
1: Who, get, who gets? Uh, because homelessness and alcoholism are
4: hilarious,
3: yeah. and he gets horribly oh, yes. killed by Axos.
4: Well, that's oh, what you getting get I'm an alcoholic. horribly
0: killed. Uh, hilarious. I mean, this this episode has a lot of the things that I really love in some of the earlier episodes. For example, the evil canvas. Mm-hmm. This will repeat itself in Doctor Who after Doctor Who. When the special effects budget is low, throw somebody inside a canvas sack and paint it, and have them just wriggle across the floor. At the same same time I thought that the monsters once they evolved into the tenderly guys looked great
4: the tenderly guys mm-hmm.
3: are cool Yeah,
0: you know so it's like well, here we're going to spend a hundred dollars on these guys so let's spend one dollar on these there's guys. a
2: lot of that like I really like the Axon's ship it's this sort of Lovecraftian flesh ship that's ribbed and moist and yeah. dotted also looks like with orifices <laughs> like the
0: mouth of it looks like a sandwich. Yeah.
2: and the doorways that the look like vaginas yeah. Yeah.
3: I, I, I kind of forgot about that it sort of prefigures The the Zygon ship is like this weird organic-looking
1: technology thing. I I remember an interview with Paul Cornell, the Doctor Who writer, who said Mm -hmm. that his first encounter with the story was him reading the novelization. And it was one of his favorites as a young person growing up. And then when he finally saw the episode, he was extremely disappointed Mm -hmm. because of the special effects were so ropey. you know, but you see where that comes from because the concepts are very strong. But if you're not totally on board with, you know, the genitalish way in which they're executed, <laughs> um, you can maybe like mm, recoil from it a little bit.
2: I enjoyed the combination of practical sets inside the ship with the CSO technology yeah. because it just it was so busy that it all actually kind of blended together into this psychedelic yeah. nightmare. It's like you just gave a kid a coloring book and a tab of acid and go to town. Well,
3: you know, it is kind of that, that era of design where it was still acid-influenced kind of looking stuff. I, I couldn't quite figure out, what was the deal with the American guy?
1: A potential love interest for Joe. Yeah. Because
3: they have to play with that. I think, I think they made that character an American just to explain why he had a gun. to, like, just
2: randomly shoot the tendril for no reason. Shoot that ganglion. Um, You're American.
3: I didn't quite pick up. Is he, like... CIA or like it's from a, Washington, is what he said. So, yes, yeah,
2: mentions New York though at another point. Oh, it does. Well, it well, because you know, there are no other cities in America. world. Brits might and then just right. it feels <laughs> like
0: a Chicago gangster at yeah. moments, too.
2: I love it. And then he's wearing the sunglasses when he goes in the mm-hmm. car, which is very American. That made me start to fill in an entire like head canon about those are the American sunglasses that the Bruce Master wears in the TV movie because oh, he's God. also the
3: American yeah. Master. Yeah. But the, the, uh, um, was he, like I was confused. Was he CIA? Was he like an American, don't ask the American version of UN, now, Unit? Oh, I, you know, I, I, like well, because, because Unit can't be all British. It's the United Nations. He was like
2: Unit's right. Felix Leiter.
1: Yeah. That's, yeah.
3: yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, it's it clearly never explained, and it's just meant to be. He's an American well, agent. Well, of they're some, having
2: some sort of political summit. Yeah. And uh, he's on his way to it when the UFO alarms the, go off. The, the, and I like,
3: the, like, defense. They have
2: UFO alarms. The Ministry
3: of Defense guy is, like, trying to usurp units' authority. And they say, like, well, we don't answer to you. We're, we answered the United Nations.
1: Yeah, there's that fun, and, fun little turf war that happens yeah. there at the beginning where one or another of them is able to shove the other one out of the room, depending on who he just talked to on the phone.
0: You know, though, as much as we're having fun and giggling, I actually have to point out that there's one really heartbreaking thing in this episode, unless I read this wrong... At the end of the episode, supposedly he's going to run off with the Master, right? And then he doesn't. That's all a trick. Haha, ha. I was just going to screw the Master over and save humanity. But when he comes back, he's asked if he came back on purpose or whether he was stuck there. And he confesses that he only returned because he was some sort of galactic yo-yo. Mm-hmm. And I found that really kind of heartbreaking. Like, I would just assume that he would return, if, you know, if he then had the ability to go off all over the place, he would at least stop back and say goodbye to Joe or something. And it really kind of led to being struck with the notion that Joe is is a companion, but she isn't. He doesn't select her as a companion. Yeah. These are just the people he's it's, stuck I mean, with. It's Stockholm Syndrome. And it really, like, <laughs> I was just sort of traumatized by yeah, that. Yeah, but
3: I mean, eventually in... You know, in The Green Death, when Joe leaves for good, they portray the third Doctor as being, like, really sad about it.
4: Yeah, you know, he was like, he I wanted little... to
3: leave you. <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, it's like, uh, you know, for, uh, for the original, you know, a lot of times when the companion leaves in the original series, it's just kind of like, oh, oh well, goodbye. You know, it was like an unusually poignant companion leaving moment for especially the third Doctor, Eric, you know, because the, you know, the third Doctor is always portrayed as so... So gruff and irritable all
1: the time. Well, he, made, he makes a point of having a little goodbye moment when he's
0: pretending to go off. He yeah, says but goodbye. It's not a Jeff loving well. goodbye moment,
1: really. Uh, for the
2: doctor. Well, yeah, by, yes. his,
1: by his standards. Yeah. yeah.
2: He Did says, you? "I'll miss you." It's, it's, it's right? very pointed. He says, "You guys can fuck off."
3: <laughs> um.
2: <laughs> but the girl in the miniskirt like her
1: thumbs up <laughs> yep. yeah, uh... well he only met her one episode ago too right or two episodes ago two adventures ago pretty much yeah because yeah, I, I... it was Terror of the Autons then Mind of Evil and then this one.
2: Oh, okay yeah it's the third serial yeah so he's not that attached and that's a theme throughout the early Pertwee is he is just desperate to get off
1: this shithole yeah, and that's and get away his from these
0: people that yep. just want to shoot first and have a conversation with other life forms mm-hmm. later
1: yeah. yeah, I mean, his uh, emotional uh, responses to the unit people and Joe are going to be different in the other story we're going to talk about a little bit later on.
3: But mm-hmm. um, A little more humane. I just wanted to mention how weird it was that the, the guy who's running the nuclear power plant is like, I have to shut this down manually. And he puts on a helmet and gloves, no suit. <laughs> and goes into this chamber with, like, a crescent wrench. <laughs>
4: I mean, that's the 70s, man. That's, just, that's what oh shutting it down
1: manually means. Clay. <laughs> yeah.
0: Right Clang. around there, one of my favorite moments is when the master's in disguise, right, as one of the unit people, oh, you know, and the speediency in which he throws off this disguise, like, I can't believe I'm not wearing black right now. Like, well, it just comes off so It quickly. also
2: looks like he's wearing a master yeah. mask yeah. like the mask looks like him yeah. which seems
0: to yeah. Do... Yeah. he's got a mustache right? go against yeah. the point yes
1: yeah. everyone knows when you have a mustache on it, you're automatically a military person yeah no his
2: it. tactic I think is to wear a mask that makes him look like he's been in some horrible accident and has had really bad reconstructive surgery so the people who see him are too embarrassed <laughs> to comment on it well
1: it's extra <laughs> annoying because it's Benton who he's bluffing yeah. his way past who has <laughs> met ben. him several times before now <laughs>
3: I guess the most interesting thing about the whole story to me is is because the master is not in any kind of control,
1: really. Yeah, he's just riding, he, riding circumstances. He amazing. had some kind of partnership
3: with Axelos, but Axelos is like clearly they had control over him, like from the start of the story. He has like no real agency to kind of like manipulate events or Except anything. Except maybe
0: he suggested targeting Earth yeah. because that's mm-hmm. fun.
3: Yeah. Uh. Although I have seen this story
2: many, many times, and every time. I forget uh, his first appearance, and I'm always surprised when he shows up as a captive. I think it's a great scene. Mm
4: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: Yes.
1: Irritated Roger Delgado is the best Roger Delgado. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What do you mean? You're not going to let me go.
0: This is also the era of, I need to hold these tendrils against my chest and make it look like they are strangling me. (laughs) (laughs) This is a special piece of acting that they all must do. I'm also
3: kind of like, like Axos' plan to take over the Earth is like, we will make your food animals really big. Big frago! <laughs> yes. Loved that frago. The French are really excited by the. Big you know, frog-o. like like we'll you, solve your food problems by by making your cows real big, so they'll have to eat like ten times as much feed. <laughs> 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 you know, I I, I, okay. I assume
1: you do it right before you slaughter them, right?
3: Well, yeah, I guess, but. Okay, you'd have to rebuild like your whole abattoir system
0: you yeah, know how much harder well. it would be to kill a beast of that <laughs> size
1: Could, compared to the other energy problems of the 1970s maybe a, something.
0: I very much enjoyed the horror movie moment of Let's take all the important people and put them in the mouth of this spaceship at once. We don't need to save anybody, you know, <laughs> to to take over if things go south. No, no, let's all barrel yeah. in there like monkeys. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Well, we should mention, because it came up in our answer to the first question, that there is a Sherlock Holmes reference in this episode uh, when uh, the doctor snottily uh, says to the other scientist um, something along the lines of, of course, my dear Sherlock, because he is pissed off at being put in the Watson position oh, uh-huh. in a laboratory. He might as well be wearing
1: a mini skirt. This is just, <laughs> he's been unmanned. Oh, yes. Don't want to put John Pertwee in the feminine position. <laughs> Even though he disguises himself as a maid in his very first appearance, <laughs> if I remember right.
2: <laughs> uh, there's a lot of fun action in this, too. Havoc is up to their antics.
1: I like that little roll the Axon does when Benton runs him off the road. (laughs) (laughs) Shoulder over shoulder (laughs) over heels. The
2: Master leaps off a bridge under the top of a truck, which is very actional for the Delgado Master.
1: Yeah, It's a running theme in this era of Doctor Who is superfluous action scenes.
2: (laughs) Speaking of running, though, sometimes when you've seen a... stories so many times like this, and so this is maybe the 6th, 7th time I've seen it. Little things pop out that I've never noticed before, and I, I know he's dead. I don't mean to disparage the man, but the Brigadier has a really weird run. His gang- I that? He super has these awkward, really yeah. flappy limbs. They're like... <laughs> Axon labia flappy.
0: <laughs> You're very into like using
2: lady bits to describe things this evening. I don't know. This has really had an effect on you over the years, hasn't it?
0: Now, here's my question. I
2: should repersonalize.
0: Because I didn't investigate this, because I assume you all are such experts that you will know the answer to this. But is this the first time that using a time loop happens? Because that becomes a mm-hmm. reoccurring theme throughout I... Doctor Who. It might be. Um... I think so.
3: It doesn't doesn't really happen in in uh, the war games no there's a lot of time stuff in the war games but it's not there's no looping
1: No, there's only individual little time bubbles
3: yeah i think it might be the first one yeah i think mm-hmm.
2: so this is also the first time they've had the interior of the tardis in a story since
1: the war games oh right season and a half
0: and it's basically the yeah. master walking in and going, why don't you ever clean your apartment? Holy shit! <laughs> and the,
3: and the, uh, yeah, I mean, the doctor tries to explain what a time loop is, and he can't. It's just too weird of a concept at the time.
0: Like, it's, you know,
2: a time loop. He's searching for the timey-wimey, and he just can't
1: find the word. But 30 years later. That's because he's not an later. infant. <laughs> So, final thoughts on *Claws of Axos*. I, I, this, I enjoy this a lot. Like I said, I, it's, it's just this is my real comfort Doctor Who zone mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, it's. It, it, I wouldn't say it's my favorite Third Doctor story, but I can't really object to anything about it. Really, it's just not even the labial interior design. <laughs> <laughs> it's just you know so classically Third Doctor. It's just.
4: Uh-huh.
2: Yeah, it's just a cozy blanket. There's just so many little details I find funny about it. Chin eating a chicken leg inexplicably in the one (laughs) scene. I love the repersonalize and depersonalize I don't know if that was something that they thought would be a catchphrase like the Daleks exterminate or something and little kids would be on the yeah. playground saying the specimen it specimen is
1: valueless, <laughs> absorb, process,
3: be, be, and eject. It would be great if they used the, the axonite to have like so Chin was eating like a super big chicken.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Welcome to Round 3, a discussion of the demons, or if you're a Pertwee cosplayer, the daemons. <laughs> This is the fifth and final serial of season eight, written by Guy Leppold, a pen name for Robert Sloman and Barry Letts, who would go on to write The Time Monster, The Green Death, and Planet of the Spiders. It was directed by Christopher Berry, who also directed The Daleks, episode 1, 2, 4, and five only, The Rescue, The Romans, The Savages, The Power of the Daleks, The Mutants, Robot, The Brain of Morbius, and The Creatures from the Pit, but somehow avoided directing anything involving the word death. That's hard in Doctor Who. It is, it is. I, som- someday I want to tally up how many episodes have the blank of death or the death of blank in them. The death of time or the time of death.
1: <laughs> death to the death.
0: <laughs> The time of the time.
1: Demons. <laughs> he says. Drives me nuts. It's Just an old-fashioned B, you guys. Demons is perfectly fine.
2: <laughs> so we're, we're going to stick with demons? We yeah, we're going to stick with that. demons. You, you, you do what you like, son. I mean, you are a,
1: a grown man. You can, right. but, but for me, it's demons. That's funny.
3: <laughs> the demons I'm going to try. Like Ramones. Yeah, it could be like spelled... D-E-M... O.E. smashed together.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and every time I've tried to reference this episode, I sort of, like, fudge it. Every time I talk about this episode, I fudge it, I go, the (laughs) dimms. Because I'm not sure. (laughs) I I have to say, a really fun fact is this is the first Doctor Who book I ever owned, despite the fact that as a Mm -hmm. child, I don't believe I saw any third Doctor. Mm -hmm. I came in on the tail end of eight. I watched eight, and then nine, and then would catch it in the afternoons, which was almost inevitably the fourth doctor so that was the ma- majority of what i saw as a child and yet my first book it was a two it was two books in one and i can't remember what the second book was but this was the first in the book it's like a big thick book it's oh. two two doctor who episodes in one yeah. scared the bejesus out of me
1: <laughs> yeah it's scary in principle yeah, yeah. it's it's uh, not scary in execution i don't think it, um it's yeah, i
3: think it's straight st- up hammer. hammer yeah
2: it's stylish in execution
1: Yeah I think there's Yeah there's three Genetic strands I think That are going on In here One is Hammer Horror And Mm -hmm. the other is The novelist Dennis Wheatley Whose several books Hammer adapted uh, To The Devil and Daughter And specifically here uh, the Devil Rides Out, mm-hmm. which is where a lot of the iconography of the Masters summoning of all comes from, like that movie specifically. And then also in the background, as there is with a lot of Doctor Who and Third Doctor stuff specifically, is um, uh, Nigel Neal and his Quatermass stories or, in, in this case, a story like The Stone Tape.
3: It, it's a lot yeah. like mass in the pit in some ways. Yeah. You know, like, you, you, oh, here's this thing that's been buried for years, and this is where we get the whole concept of, like, demons and devils from.
1: Yep, and they yeah. assisted in human evolution. Well, in this case, they assisted in human evolution, but you're right, that in mass in the pit, mm. those Martians mm-hmm. just presented themselves to the proto-human subconscious as uh, indicators of evil. Mm. There's
2: and, also uh, the line where... Miss Hawthorne says she cast the runes. And if you're an MR James fan, you might have uh, punched the air like I did.
1: <laughs> I like Miss Hawthorne a lot. She looks and sounds like Margaret Thatcher, but of course doesn't act a thing like her. Unfortunately, um,
2: fortunately. Um, Some um, people by called by the her fact
1: rich. that
0: she was kind of both frumpy and beautiful at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. There were moments where I was like, "Oh, Miss Hawthorne, you're delicious." I think is the, <laughs> the term.
3: Uh, she's very well cast. I, I totally bought her as like this English countryside woman who was really into the occult. Yeah. <laughs> she just totally seemed like that type of person.
1: Well, I gotta, of course, poop in the punch bowl a little bit here when it comes to Miss Hawthorne because even though I found her also from alicious and I enjoyed her <laughs> as, as a character, uh, there was a certain credulity toward black magic in the 1970s mm-hmm. that would lead to some really pernicious outcomes in the 1980s, specifically in America with stuff like the Satanic Panic and Dungeons and Dragons being uh, cast as something evil, but also, like, the false ideas of recovered memory of childhood abuse and things that tended to um, move real problems of child sexual abuse onto, like, a scapegoated subset of... Just kind of mo- more or less fictionalized black magic or devil worship you tracing of that all the
2: way back to poor Miss Yeah, I know.
1: <laughs> I know. It's a. I'm not. Crucifying Miss Hawthorne here, but I, I I'm saying if that you the, did it
2: would be upside down,
1: right? <laughs> yes, and <laughs> yes, we'd play King Diamond music.
0: <laughs> One thing I was really struck by is that I I thought this episode in some ways was very bold, and then in other ways totally pulls its punches. Like the fact that they chose to have these black masses happening in this church is like, ooh. yeah, yeah, no, that's really kind of risky, I think, to a certain extent, to suggest such an idea. Um, but at the same time, they they. Pull a couple of punches for example they always call it the cavern and not the crypt and they Mm -hmm. do this specifically to avoid offending people who are religious and then the incantation which i'm ever so fond of which was originally supposed to be the lord's prayer said backwards but again they were terrified of offending people so instead it is mary had a little lamb (laughs) backwards because they decided well if we're going to be ridiculous let's just go all out yeah
3: well, I mean, just the simple act of uh, having the master masquerade as a vicar is kind of, in and of itself, kind of amazing.
2: Not just a vicar, yeah. a rationalistic existential priest. <laughs> 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 it's one
3: of the best lines. Well, one thing I just have to kind of throw out there, there's like the scene in the pub where uh, the master vicar is trying to convince the the villagers to like follow this new kind of demon-worshiping path he's taking, I distinctly hear one of the villagers say blow me. <laughs> <laughs> but let's be honest, I think, I think he meant like like blow me down kind of like Whenever a, a,
2: you a, just so. kind of hear yeah. something you think it's blow me. <laughs> yeah.
3: But I was it just jumped right out of me like, did someone literally just say blow me?
1: <laughs> well Kelvin, I would comment on what you just said, but it's blow me. Yeah,
2: okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got uh, in that same scene though, yeah. I I think it's a brilliant scene that the master comes in as the vicar and knows every evil deed that the villagers yeah. have done. That's a I always forget about that scene and every time I see it. It's he, like does, he does
1: brilliant. his homework. <laughs> yeah. So it is great, but it gets dropped really fast because he spends a lot of time trying to convince them like, "Oh, I know your secrets." strength, power, and decision. You know, the master is fascist mm-hmm, in that right. moment. But then five minutes later, the, the mask is off, and it's all,
0: you're nothing but dust beneath my boot. <laughs> uh, They're I like, really, oh, boo. Worried, this is the episode in which Pertwee calls, <laughs> yes, yeah. calls him Hitler, too, isn't it?
2: Yes. He's, Either uh, Hitler or Genghis Khan. Yeah, can't, yes, sorry. Right. yeah it's oh, like, right. like, like, who what who, was
3: was was that, was was that, who is, is that Bounder's name? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> like, you couldn't think of Hitler's
0: name. I was really confused. It's Himmler for a while as to what they were saying was, like, done magically conjure-wise, or what if it was like, or these chants actually just tripping a voice recognition sequence that's gonna bring the demon back, like, the... It seemed very dark, magic yeah. and yet they kept saying like, "No, magic isn't real, and it's all scientifically explained." Except to me, it actually wasn't all scientifically explained. No, yeah, and it's still like, very like, confused. In they, the end. they work
3: on some kind of mental, psychic energy, which in the Doctor Who universe is like a science thing, you know, like telepathy and stuff. But, but, uh, yeah, I, I always found that very fuzzy in this story. Like, like, what exactly are the demons? Why, why are they messing around? With Earth, that's never really explained. He just has Azal, just has this like super strict uh, orders he has to follow, and he can't vary from them, even though his civilization has been dead for millennia. or
1: It's all kind of weird to me. I don't. There's a real programmatic thing about Azal. He must give his power away, mm-hmm. and when he's confronted with Joe's self sacrifice, he self destructs, like the Changeling in the original Star Trek episode, <laughs>
0: or or like what happens between Fenric and Ace in Curse of Fenric. Fenric can't get at the Doctor because Ace puts her love between Fenric and Mm -hmm. the Doctor, which in Mm -hmm. that particular one is real problematic, and so then he has to insult Ace and make us all cry. But (laughs) in here it's very much a similarity of love as the cross that is held up against the vampires.
2: It's explicitly Christian. Right, yes. In that yes, moment. Yes. or has The a purity love. of the yes. lamb.
3: His
4: she's were. dressed
2: in white for the sacrifice. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a certain intentionality of just muddying these waters between uh, magic and rationalism. Because mm-hmm. you start with the doctor's speech about like everything can be explained by science, but at the end, we have the demon telling him you are a disruptor you're irrational and he can't stand the irrational act of joe and that's what drives him away and he seems to be the purveyor of rationality and his defeat comes through that and there are moments where i think it's really unclear whether miss hawthorne has powers
4: mm-hmm.
0: she like she stops the wind, the wind at one point, and yeah,
2: stops yeah. the guy from braining her with a rock right mm-hmm. she's able to carry benton Who's Although, actually, seriously heavy for a young man, yeah, or whatever she yeah. says.
0: <laughs> I, d- I didn't think that she stopped the guy from braining her, though. I think she—I thought she calmed down the wind, and the wind had taken over the mind of the guy who was about to brain her. Yeah, I, like the, wind the wind shot the way... makes it look like she doesn't even know he's coming yeah, up my right, behind right. My it, point but, yeah. there is
2: the wind could be a coincidence. Oh sure. If it weren't for uh, showing us <clears throat> the guy with the rock, and that <clears throat> suggests that she actually stopped a supernatural power or a scientific power of the demons.
1: There's plenty of wiggle room for psychic powers are real and genuinely exist in a scientifically measurable way, mm-hmm. and they are not what the Doctor would call supernatural. Mm-hmm. They're not outside of explanation. I think the story is fairly clear that these occult powers that Miss Hawthorne is using, and as all too or whatever, are explainable on some meta-level, um, but they're not ascribable to the primitive or paganistic or uh, witchcrafty traditions that Miss Hawthorne or the yeah. local villagers would suggest that they arise from.
3: Uh, can we talk about the evil Morris dancers? Oh, absolutely.
2: Please, <laughs> please. please count one them. of my favorite scenes in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, it's a brilliant scene.
0: It's also it's really a- great. Miss Hawthorne comes up with the name uh Kwee, Kwee Quad for him, the great wizard Kwee, Kwee Quad, which means who, who, who. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: Really it, it, the, uh, well, like the. Morris dancers, like, they're using their little, their little clacky sticks to actually beat people with. And um, I, I was a little confused about this, like, when the Morris dancers and, uh, oh, God, that, I, what's his name? The, the village guy in the, in the paper outfit, which is part of the Mayday. Is he a
0: piñata? I'm super confused. Uh, it,
3: I, I don't know enough about it, but it's like, it's a pagan tradition thing to have a guy like that and you know it's still in these may day festivals that are still you know these sort of remnants of the of the pagan druidic era again i don't know much about it but like like the morris dancers come through and then there's scenes of like mothers kind of pulling their children inside and closing the door And I'm I'm confused. Is that like a Christian reaction? Like, oh, don't watch this pagan stuff. Or or do they know like something extra weird is going on with us? I would say it's
0: the Christian reaction because after the maypole comes the sex. So that's what's supposed to happen. Yeah, I
2: think in the episode they're supposed to be in on the burning of the doctor. Are you saying they? I didn't notice that. that 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 It's like before that. Part
0: way through.
3: Yeah, they're starting to burn the doctor
0: super cute. But. The shots though, are w- before he even enters yeah, the yeah. picture of the, them closing the windows and putting yeah, yeah, the yeah, children inside and stuff. Is, know, don't look at that, Susie. You know, <laughs>
1: um, uh, so there are at least three levels of yeah. religious understanding happening in the village, right? There's the normal kind of Anglican uh, mm-hmm. Christian level. And then there's the submerged pagan level that operates in the in the Morris dancing. And mm-hmm, the there's Maypole. the
2: rationalistic.
1: Well, but there's a, there's a black mass. There's a cult of. Black magicians, uh, Satan worshippers also operating there. And it's never clear to me exactly, like, who is who. Like, many of those nominal Christians at the end seem to be going along with the idea of of incinerating the doctor. And that's... uh, But then at the end, they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Nothing uh, nothing really happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Doctor
3: incineration aside, (laughs) uh, I, 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 I honestly don't know, like, in contemporary... British society, like, the relationship between an ostensibly Christian citizenry and, and, you know, villages keeping these old pagan traditions alive, is there is there a genuine friction there? Is it, like, you know... Well, American Christian fundamentalists seeing someone doing something pagan Well, if and it's, you've seen, it's, it's if, demon worship you, and they should be expunged. Or well, if you've you know. seen
1: The Wicker Man, which was filmed two years after <laughs> this movie, there's a serious friction there between well, yeah. the old pagan rituals and, uh, and the this Christian This isn't ones. quite uh, Wicker Man level. <laughs> it's not. It's kind of like Blood on Satan's Claw, though, which is the same year, which yeah. also stars Doctor Who, stars Wendy Padbury and Roberta Tovey, by the way. well, there you same, go. Same year. Uh, but I think it's... I mean, I don't know. I don't live in the British Isles, right, but yeah. I assume that this is just a you know a residual folkloric tradition that most yeah. people are like, yeah, we're okay with it. It's fine. It's part of our culture and our history. Unless you're particularly zealous about a, yeah. uh, your own religious faith and find it offensive in some way, I don't. Yeah, you know. I, I, I don't. I, I don't. Know. <laughs> I don't. This seems
2: a weird thing to put into the Doctor Who story that there are angry Christians in the background.
3: Yeah, just
2: based on the. Morris dancers. Right. It seemed like it would be the right thing to do once they grab the doctor and pull a gun on him. Right. And then even Benton says, well, that doesn't look very traditional. <laughs> he starts right. to have some religious objections at that point as well. Uh, this also contains the classic line, uh, we have to point out, uh, chap with the wings, five rounds rapid.
3: Oh. Uh, I've, uh, I've heard that
0: somewhere that they before. They were going <laughs> to cut that, and then it, they put it back in. Like they were originally I read gonna, that too. Ter- yeah. Terrence
3: Dix cut it out, but like... Uh, I want to say Nicholas Courtney insisted on putting it back.
2: That's what I read. That's what yeah. Terence Dick said in an interview.
3: Yeah.
1: I will say that uh, at five episodes, it's not quite too long or too short. I mm-hmm. think it, like, it feels kind of padded and it's full of little bits, but I always enjoy them enough. Mm-hmm. And it has strong enough writing throughout that I really like it. There, There are two moments that, in case you missed it up to this point... The Brigadier sums up the plot up to that point, and then later Mike Yates sums up. And the the first one is the Brigadier saying, So the Doctor was frozen stiff at the barrel and was then revived by a freak heat wave. Benton was beaten up by invisible forces, and the local white witch claimed she seen the devil. i <laughs> like, yep. And then later That's on— Later on, after the doctor is done with his kind of not particularly illuminating explanation, Mike Yates says, I see. So all we've got to deal with is something which is either too small to see or 30 feet tall, can incinerate you or freeze you to death, turn stone images into homicidal monsters, and looks like the devil.
2: (laughs) That's what I love about this is even ham-fisted recaps are done with style and panache, right? Then there are great scenes for all of our unit family friends. I particularly Mm -hmm. like that we get to see Benton and Yates in their civilian garb. Yep. I think Benton looks particularly tough dressed like that, and he gets a lot of good fights in. And until the master throws his cape over him at the end, (laughs) uh, Benton does really well in most of the fights. I
3: I, I, I do like the scene where they're like, you know, it's going to watch the unveiling of the tomb and they just click over and watch a rugby
4: game <laughs> right. Right.
1: that's like such a strange moment too because yeah. the doctor gets like really hot and bothered he's like joe oh, come on we have to stop this we have to leave and, and he leaves and then there's a kind of awkward moment and then mike just sits down in the chair the we he's sitting, he sitting <laughs> and, and,
3: and, and starts watching television and, and they're in the pub and they're trying desperately to get directions they're like oh you city folk always oh, rushing off somewhere the pub regulars just kind of laugh at him.
4: (laughs) I really
2: admire the pacing of the first episode. And I think the rest of the entire serial benefits from the time they take to get to know this community and really establish the environment and Mm -hmm. spend a scene with the regulars in the pub, spend all the scenes with the newscasters, add a lot of character to Professor Horner, who really is ultimately not that significant to the rest of the serial
1: Adds yeah, a lot of color to that first mm-hmm. episode. Yeah. Note to future screenwriters: have a scene set in the pub with all the locals, you know, just kind of <laughs> chatting, whatever. That's straight out of Quatermass Two, right mm-hmm. there. That with Roger Delgado, who hangs out as a reporter in the pub. And I genuinely
3: 2. can't yeah. picture a, a horror film set in Great Britain without like a
1: village pub a scene. Pub scene yeah. <laughs> <I> <laughs> American, American werewolf in London. Yeah. 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 Well, you like Benton and his civvies. Uh, I got a stand for. Uh, Mike Gates in his helicopter pilot uniform. He looks pretty good there with the jacket <laughs> yes. and, the, and the shades. Although he is
2: far more ineffectual in his fight scenes, he uh, because he, he the guy steals a helicopter from him right. and he fights, gets beaten up, and then after the guy steals the helicopter, he goes, "Oh yeah, I have a gun." Right. right. He well, remembered the gun <laughs>
0: sixty seconds
1: earlier. Ended, it, it would have been hilarious. over. Yeah, what's he gonna do with a handgun against a helicopter? That's not mm-hmm. gonna.
0: Well, and yes, then the Doctor yeah, looks think. pretty good on the motorcycle, although, you know, with his giant cape, I just keep waiting for it to get caught in the wheel. <laughs> in the <wheels. laughs> um, but he looks very Bond-esque. And speaking of Bond, um, there's a shot in this that has actually already been used once, but they decide the shot is so great that instead of using it in black and white like they did before, they're going to use it in color here, which is the exploding helicopter, mm-hmm. which is footage that they never ended up using in From Russia with Love. Ah.
4: Yeah. It, no yeah. wonder it looks yeah. good. Right? It's a great yeah. shot. You're like,
0: really? All your effects suck except that
2: (laughs) did the doctor plan to
0: lure the
2: helicopter pilot into that wall or was it an accident i I think
0: it was on purpose
1: i gotta say that whole sequence doesn't work for me like he could have turned around at any time and just gone off in the other direction the helicopter never seemed like a super threat to bessie as far Mm -hmm. as 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 far as the way it's filmed
0: i think he meant to lure him into the wall he doesn't seem real sad about it afterwards
1: he does wreck motherfuckers every so often, you know. <laughs> shooting Ogrons with guns in Day of the Daleks. Right.
2: We should also mention that uh, Sergeant Osgood is in this, who is the inspiration for the modern Osgood from yep. the new
1: series.
4: Oh. oh, so
1: I checked that on the TARDIS data core because Osgood is also mentioned in the other story we're about to talk about. Yes, mm-hmm. um, and I was like, is that the such and such? And the, it's not completely clear whether there's an established. Familial relationship, as far as I can tell, between this Osgood and Petronella Osgood. But
2: it was Stephen Moffat's intention that there is.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's clear.
2: And before we leave this, we have to mention uh, what's his name, Bach. Bach. Yeah. Bach, Bach, Bach. He has this blows r- him
1: up with a bazooka. And he comes back. I love that.
2: He has a real flying monkeys from Wizard of Oz vibe to him. Mm-hmm. The way he like moves, and <laughs> he's not very threatening. Other than the sound design, which someone should get some extra pay for that, and the uh, second episode, Cliffhanger, I think it is, where his roar, growl is really augmented It sounds really fierce, mm-hmm. but ultimately it's just this little tiny guy in a gargoyle suit. But
0: I thought the, the gargoyle suit <laughs> was pretty good, I have to ornamental? say. <laughs> like, I think the gargoyle suit's pretty spot it's on. It's Third cool. Doctor era, it's pretty darn good.
2: Yeah, yeah. and it's a
3: really Azul's nice... Azal's makeup is pretty darn good. Uh. Yeah. Azal's,
0: but overall, like, I don't know. I don't mind bad special effects, But I I would rather just see them full out than, like, we're just going to show you the bit of the leg because we know the special effect is so bad that we're going to hold off on showing them to you until we have to show them to you. I think
2: that most of 80s Doctor Who argues for the opposite, right? Like, that's when they don't hide the bad special effects and just throw glaring bright lights on the special effect, and I, I... like that, they disguise most of it in this one. Other than the the scene where he grows, where it just yeah, seems like he floats the really through the air of, and twists yeah, around. Yeah. Yeah. I'm willing. The rest of the script is so good that I'm willing to just go with it.
1: So, final thoughts on the day? Yeah. Oh,
0: it's great! It's great fun. It's it's so ridiculous that really all the things that we're questioning don't matter because it's great.
1: So, are we going to take a group trip to Devil's End, Witchwood? satan hall and covenston, <laughs>
0: covenston. Well, i've the, already been to
1: covenston which <laughs> are the other names on the signs oh, the spinning that sign, that a
0: really
2: fine. super yeah. scooby-doo moment you know,
1: somebody really the neighborhood council really leaned into the witch thing when they were naming <laughs> the towns
2: satanville uh. <laughs>
3: Okay, round four, we are now going to discuss the audio adventure, The Scream of Ghosts. Um, this is a big Finnish audio story released in 2019 as the second part of the Third Doctor Adventures, Volume 5. It was written by Guy Adams and directed by Nicholas Briggs, and it features a mix of original cast members and recast cast members. Katie Manning and John Levin are returned as uh, Joan Benton, but the Doctor is played by Tim Treloar, and the Brigadier is played by John Coleshaw which surprised me because listening to this, I thought for sure they got Nicholas Courtney. <laughs> yeah,
0: no, I was convinced it was him, and then yeah. I didn't think it was Katie Manning reading Joe because she sounded like some sort of strange munchkin, <laughs> which may be just totally rude, but she did. Well,
2: she's trying to pitch her voice to sound younger, and it is the one one of the problematic aspects of recasting The Third Doctor and The Brigadier is they have actors who are the same age as the original actors were on the TV show playing alongside actors who are now double their age. And so it
1: makes them sound more ancient. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm with you, Calvin. I wasn't sure when this was recorded, mm-hmm. when I was listening to it. And so I wasn't sure for a while whether it was Nicholas Courtney playing the Brigadier. I knew that uh, that Pertwee had been recast. And I thought he did an okay job mm-hmm. uh, playing the Third Doctor. I have no complaints particularly, but I thought the guy playing the Brigadier was very good. He was amazing. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah I, I think Trim Trollor does a great job. He really captures the essence of it without slipping into a Saturday night lifestyle parody impression and, and it, it, you really yeah. it, well it's also really supported by the script and the incidental music and everything else that I think so captures the tone of the era that you you buy in
3: yeah he doesn't overdo the irritability thing
0: However, speaking of overdoing, I have to say, incidental music and ghost sound effects, like, my ears really started to hurt because, in order to be able to hear the dialogue, because I have a little bit of trouble when I've got both dialogue and, and <clears throat> massive amounts of sound happening at the same time, I kept, I had to crank it up, but then, like, the ghost scream would come in or the incidental music would come in, and literally, I'd, my ears would start to hurt listening to it. And I really debated as to whether I was going to finish because. It got so, and I know they were making a point about how painful this ghost scream is, but I was like, is there a way we could have done this where you didn't actually reenact it for the person listening to it? That'd be great. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I also had an audio thing. It was almost the reverse of yours. I was listening to this on Carrie's Bluetooth uh, headphones, which uh, seemed to be failing a little bit, and the signal would sometimes go in and out. So, for uh, in the first place, the volume was super low. So, it really just kind of straining to hear everything. And then every now and then, Stutter, like, like that, <laughs> oh, cool. which well, I thought was thematically very appropriate <laughs> for the, uh, for the adventure that we were listening to, but but didn't make for a great listening experience.
2: Well, that's your problem.
1: It really is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of many. Well, I
2: chose this episode in particular to discuss because I indulgently really like. The idea of a story about sound being told oh, in audio, yeah, and I love yeah. all the in jokes. And I thought Pat mm-hmm. would love all the electronica in jokes.
0: I thought it was a super clever story. It was. It was very left field for that style at the time.
3: I think my favorite thing about it was the acknowledging future developments and technology from the Third Doctor. Early seventies era, like here's you know here's a prototype cell phone. We're trying to get to work and and stuff like that, without having it be this huge, you know, elbow in the ribs thing of like, hey, hey, look, we're acknowledging the modern world. Hey, <laughs> you know, it, it didn't feel like that ever.
2: No, it felt really natural, and it felt a lot like a. Unit era seventies third doctor story, which with a lot of winking um, contemporary references. So, and Mm -hmm. and I think it's a hard line to walk. And I thought this one got it right. If if that doesn't offend you to have a lot of uh, contemporary nods in it,
1: I thought yeah, it was very pastiche of Mm -hmm. the third doctor era, up to and including the. Secondary character who's one of the first people to encounter the alien menace. In this case, uh, concrete. <laughs> uh, what's his name? Warren. Yes, Warren. Warren. I want to yeah. say. Yeah. Although in, in you know 1971, 1972, he would have been smoked at the. Uh, he would have been killed. At, yes, at, immediately. In, in, immediately yeah, yeah. at the yeah. Yeah. end of uh, middle of episode one, but here he becomes kind of a hero.
2: He reminds me a little of uh, Maxwell from the
1: yeah, comic strip. From, the, uh, Stars fell in Sandridge. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I liked that a lot. I think there's maybe a little bit more squeamishness about killing uh those types of characters in modern pastiches of who mm-hmm. I don't know maybe I'm just projecting or whatever but yeah, there's like, no pig bin Josh
2: here haha dead homeless guy <laughs> right? it seems a
1: little cruel these days I guess yeah
0: but one. it used to be pretty if we can say canon um, to to have the opening sequence be somebody that dies yeah.
1: no I liked it a lot Josh I I, I I was glad that you picked this one it fit very well on as the third part of our discussion with the uh, Clause of Access and the demons,
0: although I kept I waiting for the mask to appear. and right, When right. you heard yeah. the voice that came through finally that was like, we yeah. are the... I was like, is like, that the master? Is that the master? It was the like, Vardens! I, I, I was not the expecting the Vardens. Yeah.
1: Whoever expects the Vardens. Yeah.
2: Um, <laughs> even the Vardens don't expect Vardens. No
1: the Vardens. Yeah, I didn't expect this one to be a prequel to The Invasion of Time, mm-hmm. which is what it turned out to be. Um, um, and it <laughs> It really is fairy tale logic or something. It's like, I'm not sure how... Matter gets turned into sound waves, yeah. like your, you, yeah. know, you know, claw in Marvel comics, but, <laughs> but or then how those sound, wa- sound waves then get captured onto magnetic tape or something. Where, uh, but yeah, you know, it, it doesn't it's, create
2: it's, a duplicate, but it actually consumes the original traps it on tape.
1: It's sympathetic logic it's fairytale logic. um, I'm going going with it because it's it's funny and it's it's hilarious Uh, and it sort of fits the douchey nature of the Vardins a lot.
2: you're like I think they deserve this so I'm going to believe it. Yeah. Right. The (laughs) idea that the Doctor Who theme music is just their impotent threats of revenge (laughs) being played over and over again throughout the entirety of Doctor Who is a great idea.
0: (laughs) You know, I have to say, I was struck when I I thought about how inventive this was, it led me to think that, like, there are actually a lot of Third Doctor episodes that I find really inventive, in the same way that I find Deep Space Nine really inventive. It's like, he's stuck in this one location, and so... You don't have a whole new planet every time to discover, so you have to figure out how to make what you've got to work with really clever. Oh, well, we're out of things that can be hit, locked inside the ground. We've pretty much dug up all the ground there is to <laughs> right, dig. Right. What are we going to do next? I know, let's do sound. You know, mm-hmm. And I just I was really struck by how clever some of those are and, and how limited they are and what they can work with.
1: Yeah. I think you're right from a narrative point of view. If you, if you can't go everywhere in time and space, you're only in one particular location at a particular time, then problems have to come either from above or below, or in this case, from around I guess, (laughs) sound Um, and then a lot of the drama has to result from other things the characters. The the, conflict
0: between unit and the doctor, for example and that can complexify and become
1: deeper over the course of Okay, if if William Hart alone only meets a character in four episodes and then we never see him again, that's one sort of relationship. But if John Pertwee interacts with the Brigadier for 40 episodes in a row, that's a deeper sort of relationship that you can play around with on a a storytelling level.
2: And you have some nice moments in here when Benton opens up that says he's kind of lonely and he meets the same kind of people so he's gotten into CB radio and the third doctor encourages him and tells him well I
3: think that's going to be good for you it's kind of like proto social media (laughs) yeah Yeah.
0: you know I was really struck by thinking about the, the way those relationships have evolved when I would look up some of these episodes it would say companions and then it would list Benton and it would list the brigadier as not just People in the show, but as his mm-hmm. companions. And mm-hmm. I was just like, oh, I never really thought of them as his companions, mostly because they look at each other's throats all the time, but like they don't fit what you think of as the classical description. But then again, you know, I mean, Joe goes into space with him a couple of times, but isn't assigned to him, or he doesn't select her the way mm-hmm. it regular other companion is selected but i liked sort of thinking about them for the first time as
1: companions yeah and benton in particular is is much more of a functionary uh i mean they they have humor with him in uh, episodes like uh the time monster where they where he's naked and stuff but (laughs) but for the most part he's just kind of like an extension of the brigadier the brigadier says go do something and shoot this thing or do the uh, but here john levine has been in. Doctor Who fandom since the 1970s and mm-hmm. so it just has acquired a sense of companionship that's yeah. not the right word in this, in this <laughs> context, context but you know what I'm saying
2: well it's back to our discussion of the first question of canonicity and how fans want to make things work mm-hmm. and while this isn't a narrative problem it's an emotional problem We as fans are attached to Benton. And so then we want to go back and create this attachment between the doctor and and Benton that (laughs) maybe wasn't there in the stories. Uh So it better reflects our experience of Benton. (laughs) And the fact that his uh, CB handle is Blitz. Is yeah. adorable. <laughs> <laughs> short for ballroom, of course.
1: Because he does go dancing. He invites Joe out dancing See, at waiting, least once. I was yeah.
0: waiting for him to say no, it had something to do with Blitzkrieg. And then he was like, yep, ballroom <laughs> dancing indeed. And I was like, yeah. oh.
4: Yeah,
1: no, he, it's just an adorable scene. Yeah, he was too young to be in the Fairmont. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: and it's an indulgent meta joke, but I, I love the doctor's in-depth knowledge of electronic music and Benton's uh-huh. dismissal of it as bleeps and
1: bloops the previous two adventures that we talked about had dudley simpson's Mm -hmm. electronic music in the background Mm -hmm. so that was in my ears as i was listening to the bleeps and bloops that were as (laughs) surrounding the
3: story Yeah, as loud as as the sounds were in the story i i appreciated that the background music felt like it came from the early 70s Mm -hmm. on some level a lot of times when you're trying to do like music of another era it sounds like oh this is like the 1980s idea of what the 50s sounded like or this right. is the 1990s idea of what the 60s sounded like or whatever but this this really seemed like early 70s you know like authentic. Oh we 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 have like a bunch of knobs let's see what they do
4: kind of music you know.
2: The other layer of contemporary commentary is sexism in this that mm-hmm. seems to be uh, threaded throughout. There's an the argument
0: between the doctor and the, the woman invent the professor where she's <laughs> like, you're terrible because you think I suck because I'm a woman. And he's like, no, it's not that at all. You just suck.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but then she calls him a patriarch in a cape, which is one of yeah, my favorite yeah. lines in Which there. is accurate. Uh,
1: but you're right. I mean, uh, back in the 1970s, if the story had been broadcast, Pertwee would have been much more defensive about that sort of mm-hmm. conversation. Here mm-hmm. it's, yes, you're right, I acknowledge what you're saying, Mm -hmm. but that wasn't what I was saying right now, which I think is fair.
2: And I also thought it was interesting to give some context to why this female scientist was really cranky, because she has mm-hmm. to put up with all this bullshit. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not a cute eccentricity like your cape, you dick. It's because I have to deal with all this stuff.
1: I thought it was done in a fairly elegant way. Mm-hmm. Like, what? A woman scientist? It's not like in Moonraker or
4: something. Yeah. Where it
1: was, it's a Joe who was surprised that she's a woman scientist, mm-hmm. not because women can't be scientists, but because Liz Shaw has kind of opened her mind to the Mm -hmm. idea of women scientists, and when, when it's mentioned to the brigadier, or no, the brigadier tells her that the professor is a woman scientist, he's completely bland about it. It's like, well, okay, whatever. I don't, yeah. Doesn't matter to me.
0: Another sort of example of that is like making things the way you wish they had been or, or mm-hmm, I- mm-hmm. enlarging the characters that you hope for is how much Joe accomplishes. She's like the yeah. savior at the end of this mm-hmm. one. She like figures out how, most of the time she can't figure out how to tie her shoe, it feels <laughs> yeah. like. And yet here he says, the whole world was saved by Joe Grant, you know? And I'm like, hmm, does someone feel a little bit bad for the uselessness <laughs> in which Joe was cast before and wished to make her look yeah. more impressive? I think so It's
1: a little bit of protesting too hard I think that comes out of the new series Where like Oh no All my companions can be the doctor too mm-hmm. Right You yeah. know Clara can be the doctor I thought it worked uh, better than most knew who did. Yeah, because
2: there's a narrative yeah. reason. He's actually trapped, and and he needs to communicate to Joe. It mirrors the scene in The Damons where he is stuck behind the energy wall
0: oh, and has yeah, to and try has to, to, get to communicate that to guy
2: Osgood, build the... who uh-huh. shows up in a phone call in yes. this episode, too, who apparently retired after being... Uh, humiliated. Um, Bro- humiliated.
0: I like how he mentions, no, I'm pretty sure he thought I was an idiot. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I've been in therapy for years. <laughs> oh, maybe you could do what uh, Mike Yates does and just retire and go to a Buddhist monastery. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. Well, yeah, uh, Mike, oh, shame, shame on you, Mike. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, he betrayed unit yeah. well. we'll get to that, I suppose, yeah. when we talk, of, talk about the invasion of the dinosaurs. Oh, yeah.
2: Put a my, pin in Mike Yates. Oh,
1: I, I was like, <laughs> Mike, he is, he is one of my, like, favorite, not super interesting
2: Characters that I just just my favorite bland character in Doctor Who. Yeah, I yeah, just
4: have it's like, it's it's a subset like of characters. <laughs> <laughs> like, I,
0: I really like the guy in Dragonfire that we see a couple of times. What's the pirate's name? Solomon Glitz. Solomon Glitz. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's yeah, just he's I have a warm stars. spot for Solomon Glitz. He sells his entire crew into slavery. I, <laughs> he <sells his laughs> yeah. I know he's, he's so terrible, funny, but though. he's kinda cute. Oh,
2: <laughs> Solomon Glitz. I think you see him. Teamed up with Pig Ben
3: Josh. (laughs) Savalon Glitz and Pig Ben Josh. (laughs) Out fighting Daleks somewhere.
2: Drinking pints. (laughs) Big Finish is writing the script right now.
1: (laughs) So it's the end. Of our podcast. <laughs> but the moment has been prepared for. So our, for our fifth and final round, we're just going to talk a little bit about John Pertwee, Unit, and the stories that we've talked about today. Final thoughts on all of these.
2: Well, I'll kick off by just saying I find the Pertwee era in general to be a just probably the coziest era of Doctor Who for me, which is weird because I didn't really enjoy it as a child and maybe that's it, that I rediscovered it as an adult and it appealed to me when I went back and rewatched them when they all came out on VHS in college I have this warm, fuzzy spot in my heart for um, the Pertwee area. I should probably have that looked at that warm fuzzy spot in my heart but um, yeah after 50 years old yeah yeah. And and a colonoscopy maybe the axons with one of their tendrils can help me with that just not the exploding one but I think Damon's is clearly the superior episode. As much as I love "Claws of Axos," for me, it is just a, a superior production. The, it's funnier. The action is better. The direction is more stylish. I just I like it a lot. It has a rationalistic existential priest in it, <laughs> played by Roger Delgado, <laughs> which you love don't it. like
0: at all. Yeah. Love it.
2: Um, I mean, but the "Claws of Axos" is just a lot of fun to me. It is a greatest hits, as we already said, and, and to some degree, what I find entertaining about those two stories is that they represent kind of two different tonal aspects of the pertweet era. It's kind of this bright, colorful silliness in the claws of Axos and this slightly more sophisticated witty, little darker version in the Demons. And I mean, it's kind of like a kids' table, adults' table divide and it just depends <laughs> on my mood. Do I want to have a food fight or have some heady discussion about religion and science at the table? Uh, but I, I enjoy both. <laughs> very much.
0: You know, I hadn't watched really much tweet at all. Um, you know, I, when I was a child, I started at 8, and then I went to 9, and then I just watched whatever was reruns, which was mostly 4, because he had so many more years than anybody else, and... uh And so when I went to watch these, my fellow was like, Pertwee's my favorite. And I was like, really? Isn't Pertwee the one who's stuck on Earth the whole time from whatever?" You know, because I watched all of those once, but everything else much more than once. And so they were just kind of dimming in the back of my brain. And I was just really struck at how inventive and clever and fun they are. But in this case, I have to say that my favorite was The Scream of the Ghosts. I just thought it was such a clever idea. And I didn't care whether the science of it worked or not. It it was so, none of the villains ended up being the villains I expected none of the setup Mm -hmm. led to the corridor I expected it to go down. It was, But it also didn't laugh at me for being wrong. It was just really unique and clever. Mm
1: -hmm. So you linked a sort of more modern interpretation of the Pertwee era.
0: Maybe. Maybe. I think I just really liked the notion of being captured in sound. And I don't know, it just... It blew my little mind in a way that, like, oh, another alien invader did not really do. But I still have a fondness for the demon simply for being the first Doctor Who book I ever owned. But it was a lot less scary as an adult. I think maybe that's part of it, too, is that, like, I went into it with the trembling anticipation of the Uh child who'd read that book and gotten the night sweats, you know, and it didn't... It was fun, but it didn't terrify the pants off
1: me. Yeah, like Paul Carnell reading Clause of Axos <laughs> in the novel first and then being disappointed in the actual production of it. Mm-hmm. I guess for me, I, the three strands, I really liked, by the way, revisiting these John Pertwee ones. We haven't done a lot of Pertwee on this podcast, even though we've been doing the podcast for a very long time. Um, so I, I guess there were three things that I want to project into the future when we talk about Pertwee stuff. Uh, One is, I agree with you, Josh, that this is the coziest era of Doctor Who for me. It's because there's a home and friends, I think. You know, there's a supporting cast, and you like them, and they're a little shtick. And so that's thing one. And then thing two for me is something we didn't talk about this episode, but I think we want to talk about in future unit stuff is... There's an idea, especially in contemporary Doctor Who fandom, that this unit era is problematic. Um, he's, it's extremely militaristic in a way that maybe kind of cuts against some of the usual Doctor Who um, concepts. Although John Pertwee himself, or John Pertwee's Doctor, usually kind of criticizes the Brigadier for all of his violent activities, he's still hanging out with a military, uh, Brit- the British military, Yeah, I mean, they say they're United Nations, but they're really British military, who we know has at least genocided one alien race, the Silurians. And, you know, so that doesn't really, that doesn't sit well with a lot of contemporary Doctor Who fans. And so reconciling that sort of coziness with the militaristic aspects is something that might be interesting to talk about going forward. And then the third thing for me... This is maybe more personal. The number of episodes involved in each one of these stories is very interesting to me. The Clause of Axos is four. The Demons is five. But there are plenty of six and I think even seven part yeah. Per-wee episodes. And so these are, yeah, I know. I
0: really like them when it's four and done.
1: Yes, yeah. Ariel's deflating right next to me right now as I say this. <laughs> I thought oh, I loved She's her
2: depersonalizing right in front of us.
1: <laughs> I had forgotten that The Demons was five. I thought it was six because five is unconventional. Mm-hmm. It, I, yeah. I think be, it was intended
0: to be six and some of the footage of them, just them. sucked. From, well, yeah. <laughs>
1: and although I was enjoying watching it, I was so relieved. To discover that oh no it's five instead of six and that's because usually when a story is longer it just means it's more padding and more kind of bullshit and it also means I think that the the narrative arc is looser
4: mm-hmm.
1: and I thought of this when we were listening to Scream of Ghosts because a usual three act narrative structure would be a setup. Development and um, uh, outcome. Uh, yeah, outcome completion or whatever. And that fits weirdly with four episode Doctor Who structure. Mm-hmm. So, what usually happens is that the setup is episode one, and then episodes two and three are the development, and then the three is the resolution, or episode four is the resolution, sorry. Uh, Scream of Ghosts is weird because the first two episodes are the setup. Mm-hmm. The development is crammed into Cram, episode three, yeah. and then it's resolved at episode four. I'm like, oh, I want to, I want to keep an eye on this in the future. I want to see how the the narrative arc goes, especially when we do Pertwee's longer stories. Does mm-hmm. it work? Does it not work? Where does the development fall? Where does the resolution fall? Mm-hmm. So. I said, that was a little long-winded, but no, that's what I take away from, from no, That's right. Every time we, w-
0: we watch a pervy, I'm going to ask
1: you how the ball bounces. So. Right. I, I will bring charts. I'll bring my whiteboard. <laughs> I'm sorry that our, our listeners can't see my whiteboard, <laughs> which you all see hanging behind me right now. But...
2: Mm. <laughs> it's just the windshield of Mike Yates' motorcycle that he's doodling on, just like the third Doctor in Demons.
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of go back and forth on the third Doctor era. It's either one of my least favorite or one of my most favorites. It kind of depends on my mood. <laughs> you know, like like I, I do have that kind of childhood thing of like, oh, he's just on Earth and he isn't going through space and time. Oh, uh, boring. You know, and then but then there are other times when I'm just really, really in the mood for like a third doctor story. You know, kind of basic uh adventureness of it. And I was thinking about um I don't remember when I saw this. It was it was on our local PBS station once during uh, one of the pledge drives. But they they were showing like uh, it was something made for the BBC that was like a you know like a retrospective of of Doctor Who up to that point. And by that point, I mean it was like the fifth Doctor, the sixth Doctor was like the like brand new at the time. And they were just there was just it kind of ended with this sort of man on the street thing where they were just asking random people who their favorite Doctor was, and all of them kept saying the third Doctor. Okay. And, you know, it basically boiled down to that the third Doctor was a lot more relatable. Mm -hmm. You know, he he was in the present day, and he dealt with sort of more earthly concerns, and, like, you know, it wasn't... You didn't have to, like... Like, he suddenly on some other planet, and you had to kind of, like, backfill what the planet's whole deal was. Figure out the (laughs) rules. Yeah, yeah, figure out the rules and stuff. And I I remember being kind of surprised by that at the time. Like,
1: Do you think it might have been an artifact of the... the per we episodes being the first ones broadcast on American television, especially down in Iowa. Well, where- these
3: were um, th- these were English people being interviewed.
1: Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. All right.
3: They were all kind of about the age where, like, they would have been kids in the Third Doctor era. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're, it's always it always goes back to, like, what did you see when you were a kid? Sure. It always does. I mean, Doctor Who or anything else. I have a blank spot for the Third Doctor era, but they should... Get over that and wash some.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> you kids, get off my lawn and wash some John Pertwee. You
3: know, I, I, I don't mean that strictly, like, strictly new-who people, but I mean, like, e- even people who, like, the older, who, like, seem to have kind of a blank spot for the third doctor, and I don't quite get it.
1: Yeah. I think there are yeah. some, Yeah some reasons for that tom baker overshadowed him america it was trapped he was trapped on earth for much of that time and then there's the military thing mm-hmm. yeah, he's also one of the
2: thing. least eccentric of the early doctors i think yeah. to a certain degree um i mean he definitely has his eccentricities yeah, but they, they aren't as
3: flashy kind of a struggle outside of that. his clothes yeah. Uh, yeah yeah the cape and the ruffled shirts but other than that he's just you know, just kind of your average... Who are you? What do you want? Well, yeah. <laughs>
4: you <know? laughs>
1: I think there's an element that we haven't talked about, too, that we'll probably need to revisit in later Doctor Who stuff, which is the sexism. It's one thing when Tom Baker is being dismissive to Sarah Jane Smith because he's such a weirdo. You and, know? He's and
2: dismissive of everybody else. Yeah,
1: and, and, and when Bill Hartnell is being sexist, it's like he's a cranky old man, and, and Patrick Trevon really isn't to speak of. But Pertwee... Uh, in The Demons particularly, he dresses Joe down like pretty severely at one point for criticizing the brigadier. Which that's, is so
4: hypocritical.
1: Yeah, which I, I think it's meant to be hypocritical and mm-hmm. it's meant to you know, kind of point out his hypocrisy, but it still reads pretty nasty. Yeah, it's a and, sour note for yeah, sure. And he does that a lot, John Perwey does. And whether that's him as an actor or his writers or the just the environment that they're uh, existing in 20, er, yeah, 20th century the Earth. The only
0: thing that improves after that, on the whole, is that the doctor doesn't necessarily say crappy things to the women, but the women being not the most useful and kind of flaily and screamy still continues as a theme. Right. You know, yeah, I mean, with some Tom Baker exceptions, which is, I think, for me, I know a lot of people love Tom, the Tom Baker years for Tom Baker, but for me, I loved it for the female companions mm-hmm. because they were so much better than all the other female companions.
1: Yeah, for me, I'm just simply referring to how the doctor treats sure. women.
0: Yeah, and if,
2: the narrative yeah. often leads often does the women an injustice, but Pertwee himself as the doctor is often the one doing the injustice to the female
0: companion, which is different from other... And I guess, you know, I think I forgive that because he's just so mad about being on Earth. And so I don't think I've ever taken it... I've never actually think... I think, and this is funny that I'm the woman saying this, but I've never really read it as him being sexist because he's kind of a jerk to everybody. Mm. He's just so angry at his fate.
1: Yeah, no, and you're right. He's, He's certainly mean to all of the other unit characters, too. But uh,
2: He's mean in a less gendered way, though. He doesn't sure, tell the right. brigadier to sure. make him tea.
1: Tea, right. <laughs>
4: Earl Grey, huh? Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Wrong podcast,
4: Oh <color>. All right. <laughs>
2: Well, that is the end of another podcast, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in another month or less, somewhere in that month-ish time frame, uh, with our next episode, which will be Inscrutable Who. (laughs) We will be discussing Inscrutable Episodes. That's where we get the title. Uh, Ghost Light and Warriors Gate. We will be also <laughs> having a trivia round. Pat will challenge us for the most hardcore, obscure Doctor Who trivia. So join us then. Until then, I'm Joshua.
0: I'm Ariel. I'm Pat. And I'm Kelvin.
2: And we're saying... Get my
4: world!
0: You're just having a hard time over there. Right. Aren't you you guys just carry on without me. <laughs> we can't, though.
2: You're the heart of the podcast, like a, the faltering, weird, irregular beat.
0: Thank you so much. I'm the flavor text. You're the faltering beat. What are the rest of you? You're the constant I'm the defibrillator.
3: <laughs> I don't know. I've never known what the hell I am in this podcast.